Hello to all you wonderful listeners out there. I am Matt Landis, and you are listening to the Tink Tink Club podcast. On the following episode, we had the great pleasure to have an in-depth conversation with Lorenzo Haggerty, the host of the Psychedelic Salon podcast. If you aren't already subscribed, I urge you to go to psychedelicsalon.us or search for the Psychedelic Salon in the iTunes store and prepare your consciousness for a new form of expansion, one led by the bard Terence McKenna himself. Now, I could go on about my admiration for Terence for hours, but we have to remember that there are new thinkers and new speakers that are out there right now changing the world one thought at a time. Lorenzo has such a generous heart that he brings all of these thinkers and philosophers side by side with Terence, gives them to the world, and he asks nothing in return. Um, his book, Genesis Generation, will be available March 1st, 2015, in paperback form. And if you haven't already had the opportunity to read the ebook, you should definitely consider picking up your own copy. Now, without further ado, Lorenzo Haggerty. Welcome back to the Tink Tink Club. We are here today with a very special guest, the host of the Psychedelic Salon podcast and author of The Genesis Generation, Lorenzo Haggerty. Welcome, Lorenzo. Hi, Lorenzo. Hey, Lorenzo. Hi, guys. <laughs> Good to be here. Thank Loren you, thank you. Lorenzo has spent the last dec decade providing the world with many wonderful hours of lectures and talks from all the great psychedelic explorers of our time. He is also responsible for starting the Palenque Norte lectures, which have become a major staple of the Burning Man Festival every year. It's from those lectures that many of the new ideas and insights into the psychedelic community are brought to public attention. He's here today to talk to us about the world of entheogens and to help us spread the word about the future of psychopharmacology. Uh, why don't you give us a brief history of how it all started, Lorenzo? Uh, by it, do you mean me <laughs> or the salon? <laughs> yeah, how about, yeah, how, how Lorenzo started. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, uh, the first 60 years of my life, I was Larry. And uh, in 2002, uh, I, I walked onto the playa at Burning Man for my first time. And by the time I left, uh, I changed my name to Lorenzo. And uh, <laughs> from there, uh, the following year, I started the Palenque Norte lectures. And mm -hmm. uh, they led to the, uh, the Psychedelic Salon because I had all this material I wanted to put out. And uh, <laughs> podcasting started a couple of years after I started the, uh, the lectures at Burning Man. But uh, So it gave me a, a good way to uh, get all this material out. Because, you know, we do a lecture at Burning Man. And, you know, we had the first year we had Alex and Allison Gray and their daughter, wow. Zena. Right. And, uh, you know, we had room for like uh, maybe 40 people in the little <laughs> <laughs> enclosure we had. But now, you know, hundreds of thousands have been able to hear it because uh, podcasting came along, which is really fortunate. Oh, that's so great. How did you how did you feel during that first Palenque Norte lecture? Did you know that you were like changing the world at the moment or is it one of those things that you didn't realize until later? Yeah, not even close. I was just hot <laughs> and tired and glad to have it over with you know? <laughs> but, yeah what what happened is uh we we uh hooked up with uh i can't remember the name of the theme camp we were with that year but they had these uh 
they looked like little igloos, little white cardboard things. And uh, the guy had uh, designed them. They're used in uh, for emergency shelter around the world now. But uh, we had to get there like four, three or four days early and start helping them fold these things. We we built <laughs> maybe two dozen structures out of folded cardboard. And so by the time the talk started, we were just exhausted. <laughs> Imagine. Uh, I'm sure planning and organizing everything wasn't uh, as fun as it might have sounded. <laughs> How did you start? But, but, go ahead. How did you start getting into? Like, where did the idea come from to start Palenque? You went to Burning Man that first year, and the next year, right away, you started uh, Palenque. Yeah, well, Palenque actually, the original Palenque and Theobotany series uh, of conferences was held in Palenque, Mexico, down by the ruins. And this, the series ran maybe eight or nine, maybe ten years. The first year I went was in 1999, which, uh, just by unhappy coincidence, was actually the last year that uh, Terrence McKenna was there. Mm-hmm. But he was sort of the cornerstone of the whole thing. And and uh, back then, back in 99, you know, you, there there was, the web was only, uh, what, six or seven years old. There was no Arrowhead. Uh, you still couldn't find much out about psychedelics. And the Palenque uh, and Theobotany Conference was about the only thing around, uh, uh, except well, the Mind States Conferences. I had There'd been one of those by then. And there'd been one or two conferences out in the West Coast uh, that was held, you know, every three or four years or something. But uh, the Palenque Conferences were the core they they ran for a week but they ran two two sessions back to back and each session had about 80 uh, attendees and 20 speakers and it was we all had our own little it was in a perfect jungle setting we had our own little cabins with family style eating so you know we had breakfast lunch and dinner with the shulgans and terrence mckenna and people like that and so it really became a close-knit family, and, and many, many of the people came back year after year. Uh, that particular session is when I met my wife. Uh, I met her there, and that was, that was her fifth year there. Wow, that's <laughs> wow. a beautiful thing. <laughs> but, but the Palenque uh, conference, uh, it went on two more years after Terrence got sick and died, and, right. and, but it, it disintegrated and went away because he was sort of the main draw. Yeah. And uh, so in 2002, I went to uh, Burning Man, and we were participating in a theme camp and we we're driving home that day uh, at the end of the uh, session and we'd already decided we we're coming back the next year and we we're going to have a theme camp and and uh, I said to my wife I said you know I'd like to take the Palenque vibe though <laughs> sitting by the pool up there and she said well let's call it Palenque Norte oh, wow. and uh, so I started calling around and and uh, Eric Davis came uh, came along first and then he, uh, he brought in our friend uh, Daniel Pinchbeck uh, Daniel's uh, another Palenque alumni and uh, I forgot how it all happened. John Hanna uh, got involved. He was actually a big-time Palenque guy. And uh, he was actually the very first Palenque Norte speaker was John Hanna. And I think he helped us get Alex and Allison Gray. And uh, there were only like eight or nine speakers that first year. And uh, then it started growing. By 2007, it, it was the biggest one we ever did. And uh, we were at, it, at the first year of in Theon Village. And mm. They brought what still is the biggest uh, single tent they've ever had at the uh, playa, and we had had like 35 speakers, but the uh, tent was actually filled with over a 1,000 people when Anna and Sasha Shulgin spoke, and uh, that's been documented in in some videos and stuff now, but uh, so that that was sort of the pinnacle year, and uh, now it's, uh, I I, uh, actually, 2006, that was 2006, 2007 is the last year I actually went. 
and uh, now I've turned it over to uh, 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 Christopher Pezza and Tom Riddell and Bruce Damer, and they're producing the lectures, and then I'm doing the podcast with them. But uh, <laughs> they're doing all the heavy lifting, and <laughs> they've gotten some really spectacular talks out there lately. Uh-huh. And you're just giving it out to the world. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it, this is my hobby, and uh, so I don't even use Google Ads on my website mm-hmm. because, uh, I, you know, I, I want to make sure that it's just uh, fun for me, and I love listening to these things, and so it doesn't take all that much more work for me to, you know, write an intro and outro and mm-hmm. uh, put them together and put them out there. So, uh, And then people started sending me these McKenna talks, you know, and, yeah. and I loved listening to them, and I thought... Well, uh, you know, I talked with Terrence's son and, and some of his friends, and we thought, you know, his his archive burned, and so this would yeah. be a way to make sure that he doesn't get lost for the ages, because uh, he's really the the guy that brought us all together. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, we believe that you're doing a, a major service yeah, to the world. But well, please, please don't tell me that, because all I'm doing is <laughs> is my little hobby in our spare bedroom here in our apartment. So please, please don't put that kind of pressure on. Oh me. well, you know, you know, I'm just having fun, you know. <laughs> so, how did the the podcast arise out of Palenque? I mean, you've well, been doing it for ten years now. I mean, since 2005. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's crazy. It's a long time. It, it, it's uh, it's interesting. I is in uh, well, it was January of two thousand five. Uh, John uh, Hanna produced the, his last Mind Stakes conference up in San Francisco, and uh, by then I had put up some of uh, most of the uh, the podcasts. I, not podcast. I'd taken the like the talks from Alex Gray and Daniel Pinchbeck and Eric Davis. And at the time, you know, the net was really slow. People still had dial-up connections. So I, I broke them into little 10-minute segments. <laughs> I had all of those up there, you know, for little quick, short downloads. And uh, this friend of mine, we were up at John Hanna's conference, and this friend of mine says, uh, hey, have you heard about podcasting? And I said, yeah, I have, but I you know, don't, have a, don't have an iPod or anything. He says, well, you don't need one. You can do it on the computer. And I said, oh, I'll look into it a little more closely. And he said, well, you know, I'm going to start a podcast. Do you mind if I use all those talks? from Palenque Norte. I said, no, they're all yours. Go ahead and do it. Well, a couple months go by, and he'd never done it. And by then, I'd checked out podcasting, and it looked kind of fun. And and uh, so I got a hold of him. I said, hey, do you mind if I podcast them too? <laughs> he said, well, no, they're yours, and I'm not going to do a podcast after all. And uh, <laughs> that's that's when it started. So I, the first one I put out was uh, the talk I gave at Mind States in 2001, May of 2001. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any intention of going you know, very long with it, but I, I'm kind of geeky. And so it was fun. I was trying to figure out this RSS feed. And so, uh, you know, I named everything wrong. And, and, uh, (laughs) then I did a couple more of those, those early talks and, and, uh, I don't know, I'd done a dozen or so and hadn't been paying too much attention other than just, you know, figuring out how to do it when, uh, KMO got a hold of me. Mm-hmm. And he had a he had just started a podcast and had a, had a couple of them out and and uh, he says hey the dope fiend is a big fan of yours and I, I didn't even know who the dope fiend was <laughs> and, and so long story short uh, they they told me hey I was, I was I was getting some people listening so I started checking the downloads and and you know the first uh, you know how it is the first. Uh, couple dozen podcasts you're you're if you the first time you hit a hundred you're just astounded you know and so uh i was really pleased and then uh kmo did a uh interview with me and i got involved with the dope fiend and the three of us i think kind of build our audiences together all right. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I remember we had a uh, actually had a party when we hit our first 500 download. <laughs> <laughs> that's exciting. It really is. Uh, yeah. Well, we actually uh, let's bring it back to when you were first introduced to MDMA. 
just to give people a little bit of background. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I tell this, the, the, the headline, to make it short, is uh, I was living in Dallas, Texas, and I was an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer. Uh, <laughs> I, I walked into the Stark Club, took some MDMA, and I walked out Irish. Everything else I left behind. <laughs> can, we, um, can we touch on what the Stark Club actually was? Yeah, the the Stark Club is is there's several documentaries about it, and and that interview I did about Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate is uh, for the uh, DVD extra features of one that they're uh, putting putting together. But in Dallas, Texas, of all places, uh, what was this club that uh, Felipe Stark from France designed, and it was the this is in this is in in 1982 three four somewhere around there uh, before the rave scene had started he built this club which was ultra modern it had a, a pit down the bottom that was a chill space uh, it was co-ed bathrooms it was multi-store uh, story dance floors and the music we called it stark music but the music evolved, uh, moved up to Chicago, where uh, Genesis P. Orridge heard it for the first time. They called it house music by then. And that's the rave community, uh, the rave idea of a rave. Actually, the Stark Club was <laughs> ground zero. Wow. It was so popular back then. It was, this is just after Studio 54 in New York had kind of phased out. Uh -huh. And it was so popular at the time, Madonna moved to Dallas to be close to the Stark Club. Wow. The, the talking heads were there. Right? Yeah, Even Bush showed up. You know, it was it was just unbelievable scene. And and here, Dallas, Texas, the buckle on the Bible Belt is actually where MDMA, or at the time, uh, pure MDMA was called ecstasy. Mm -hmm. That's that's where it, it became a street drug. And you know, it had been here in the West Coast used uh, for therapy for many years. There's thousands of therapists have been trained, but it only hit the the street in Dallas and largely through the the Stark Club. Right. What was your first experience like with MDMA? <laughs> oh, it was it was my life changing experience. You know, I I was uh, let's see at the time I I guess I was forty two years old, wow. and uh, at that time, you know, I'm a Vietnam vet, but I'd never even smoked pot at that point in my life. <laughs> in, in Texas, uh, they were giving you thirty years to life for a single joint. <laughs> Plus, you know, being a lawyer, I'd I'd never I'd lose my law license and everything. So. You know, I was I was like squeaky clean, and and uh, a friend of mine calls from Mississippi. He was a, a lawyer friend of mine, still is, and uh, he he asked about ecstasy, and I he said, "Do you know anything about it?" And I said, "No, but I can find out." And long story short, the uh, this woman who was a good friend of my my then wife uh, was really kind of at ground zero. She was a close friend with the guy who actually brought it to Dallas. And, uh, so, uh, she, she set me up. Uh, I, I went over to her house. I didn't tell my then wife that I told her I'd gone out of town and cause I didn't want to tell her I was taking drugs. You know, she wouldn't worry about, you know, being with her friend. But so anyhow, I go over to, to her house and she was going out on a date, but she had, uh, got a hold of a friend of his, a guy named Lou and, uh, had him to kind of babysit me cause it was my first time. And, uh, from from there on, I mean, it was like uh, it, it was obviously a completely life changing mm -hmm. experience, you yeah. know. And what, what's amazing about it is, uh, I've helped uh, a, a number of people have their first experience, and almost to a person, the, their first comment is, "You know, I've felt like this before." You know, it, <laughs> it, you don't see monsters and stuff. Now, I've I've seen a few people with, that did have a bad experience on it, so it's not 
hundred percent like that, but ninety-five percent uh, of the people say, "Oh, you know, on the best day when I was a little kid, I felt like this once or something." It's <laughs> it's uh, pretty amazing, and and you know, most uh, people come into it first time in in a dance situation or rave situation, which is right. is I think unfortunate because the very first time you take it can't be beat. I mean, you'll never have another. It's the Virgin Rush, you I know. Agree. True. Yeah, so so if anybody's going to try it, and you know we have to put out all the provisions, is illegal, all right, this stuff. Of course, and, of course. <laughs> anybody that that the number one thing is you got to know your source because there's really so much junk on the on the ground. But you know when we first started, there really was only one source, wow, <laughs> so it wasn't hard to get good good quality pure MDMA. But the first time anybody does it, if they do it with just two or three of their closest friends in an evening and a quiet uh, night with music available. That's the best way to do it. Now, I've danced all night on it, too, and I think that's great as well. But right. I'm so glad that my first experience was, uh, you know, outside of the, the world of uh, intense music and mm-hmm. big crowds. I know you, you were a part of a couple sessions with uh, Vietnam Buddies. You said so, you mentioned couples therapy. Um, have you seen some real positive effects from doing these sessions with people? Yeah, I, I've uh, I, I shy away from doing. It. I, I in the early days, I did this with some of my close friends, and like I said, with a couple of Vietnam vet friends. Mm-hmm. But uh, the real breakthroughs are now coming uh, largely through the work of Dr. Uh, Michael Mittenhofer and his wife Annie out on the East Coast, right. and they're in their second phase of a test uh, now. But even the Pentagon has approved their protocol for uh, use with uh, returning veterans. But right. the the most positive uh, story because most people don't want to talk about uh, PTSD but I put a podcast out ago uh, a few weeks ago that from a Burning Man uh, talk at Planque Norte and uh, this woman uh, Rachel Hope went through the protocol she had PTSD uh, she was raped when she was eight years old and hit by a truck shortly thereafter oh, I guess oh but wow. she spent like like 19 years you know just not able hardly to get out of the house and uh, she tells her story, and, and with, with professional therapists like the Mithoffers, I think she had no more than three or four sessions with MDMA and the therapy, the psychotherapy. But it, it, people that know what they're doing, the, the therapists that use this, and, and there have been thousands actually trained uh, back before the, it became illegal, they, they have had literally spectacular re- results i mean she she has uh, claimed and she's one of the few people she's been public on cnn and all too uh claiming you know she is completely cured of now she says yeah. she still has ptsd but the symptoms she has totally under control right. she's back in control of her life so it, you know it's a difference but uh so far it's the only thing that anybody's come up with that's been able to help ptsd which is a huge problem here in this country yeah absolutely i think about two months ago we had a um a marine a veteran who had ptsd he's actually a part of uh he's the subject in tom schroeder's book if you've heard of it acid test oh um, yeah they got the book the, uh, yeah read it you mean, yeah, yeah. The the Marine's name is Nicholas Blackston, and he came on and told us his whole story. And he it went. He did the the trial, the clinical trial through maps, and now he's. But that's um, that's the same one I'm talking about. That's oh, the yeah, same one I'm talking. Yeah, I actually just listened to that podcast. It was like the story was very moving, and mm-hmm. at the end, I kind of had to stop and 
just like think about it afterwards. It was very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you know, you 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 guys out in the East Coast need to think about this. You know, the people in Boston are starting to go crazy, and some of them will have uh, PTSD symptoms. You know, it's it's going to be difficult digging out from what all is going on out there. That's yeah. very true. Uh, you know, Maps predicts that MDMA will be FDA approved for prescription by 2021. Do you think they're being optimistic, or do you think that's a realistic possibility? No, I've I've talked with Rick about it some, and and with some of the others, and and Dr. Charlie Grobe is a really close friend of ours, and I see him regularly, and and uh, I I think that's uh, I don't think that's overly optimistic at all. Uh, I think it's very possible, uh, particularly you know something that when some of these original projections, and, and right now you know it's really more a function of money than a lot of things because you have to go through these these hoops to do it. But with all of the legalization of cannabis going on, uh, the climate is changing, and then with these success stories that are coming out of the Maps uh, study, uh, I think that it. Uh, I think he's very realistic about it. Uh, so uh, I'm quite hopeful. And and I wouldn't have said that two years ago. To tell you the truth. Wow, mm-hmm. wow, that's great. Um, do you so since you mentioned that um, Lorenzo, that uh, psychedelics kind of riding that coattail of cannabis. Do you feel like there's something else afterwards, like um, MDMA or like what will ride the psychedelic Psilocybin. coattail? <laughs> no, you know I I don't really think they're going to legalize. You, you know. Marijuana or cannabis is is one thing, but uh, the psychedelics are a real threat to people. Look, look, right. yeah, even MDMA. Look, I was an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer, <laughs> and I'm no longer a Republican. I'm, I'm still licensed to practice law in Texas, right. I guess. But that's, that's what they don't want, right? Yeah. They don't want you. Right. All they don't want you thinking for your. Yeah, they don't want you thinking for yourself, you yeah. know, and, and questioning authority. But uh, you know, I was I was really on the straight and narrow for the first forty two years of my life, and well, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't say I'm not now. I, I am, but it's yeah. a different straight and narrow. Right. Wow. So, do you think we'll ever? Do you think we'll ever have the proper terminology or language to describe some of the things that you talk about on the salon, or some of the things that Terence was talking about? Mm. That you know, certain words have a stigma that's hard to shake. Mm. Do you think we're we're coming up with new words and terminology? Well, you know, when I started the salon. Uh, I, I thought for a while about calling it the entheogen something or other or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, and I was, I was talking to this close friend of mine who's gay, and he says, you know, it doesn't matter what word you come up with, they're going to take it away from you. He says, we took queer back. Why don't you take psychedelic back? And so that's where the psychedelic salon name came from. And, oh, wow. And I, I think, yeah, let's, let's just meet them head on with these things. All right. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah my, my, my main focus really, you know, I'm, I'm not political. I've done my share of that. You know, I've chained myself to the White House fence and stuff in the past, but on different causes, not the war on drugs. But right now, what my objective is, is to make it so that it's, it's socially acceptable to uh, talk about psychedelics and stuff while you're at work at, over right. lunch or at the water cooler. You know, make it make it part of our conversation again so we can uh, talk about these things. Right. I think I don't, I, maybe it was you or maybe it was Terrence that talked about coming out of the psychedelic closet. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, it, you know who, who I think it was is Daniel uh, Jabor. Oh, okay. Fortunately, yeah, he died of an overboat dose. <laughs> oh, gosh. Great. <laughs> and, and, and what happened, you know, he, there'd been several attempted interventions, but uh, uh, as I understand it, uh, what happened is uh, heroin all of a sudden got really pure. Wow, and yeah. 
get them in. So, you know, I've never done heroin. I've done a lot of things, but uh, heroin and crack or two I've, I've avoided. Actually, yeah. I don't like any of the opiates because, you know, they just put you into a dreamy sleep. And, uh, uh, yeah, and you know, I, I actually quit doing most psychedelics when I started the salon except for uh, slipping out of the uh, country and doing ayahuasca. <laughs> oh, uh, really? But, yeah, but, you know, I, I'm I'm 72 years old now, so uh, these things are a little bit more taxing on the body than they used to be. All but right. uh, uh, I smoke cannabis every day. Or I vaporize it. I don't smoke it. All right. but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and I don't take any prescription medicines. I take absolutely no medicine except for cannabis. Just cannabis. It's the way it should be. Yeah. Can you yeah. Um, talk about the, your ayahuasca experiences? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they've been, they've been uh, probably the... Uh, key psychedelic experiences that I've had. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you know that they. It's only recently I've heard a couple of the people in, uh, that I've played podcasts uh, talking about the different personalities. Maybe it was Terrence uh, of these substances, but and I, I agree with. Uh, I think it was him. His uh, assessment that LSD is kind of mechanical, uh, yes. mm-hmm. whereas uh, mushrooms are kind of cosmic. Yes. And ayahuasca is very earth, earthbound, earth-like. And so my ayahuasca experiences, I, I almost feel like it's, you know, Mother Earth. I call her Lady Ayahuasca. The, the voice in the head changes a little bit into this other voice. And, uh-huh. and uh, But I, I have, uh, I've done ayahuasca, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 times, but only with two different uh, shamans from uh, Ayahuascaros from Peru, and uh, one was trained by the other. Both of them have been doing this for, well, now over 20. One's been doing it over 20 years, one over 30 years. And so they're very, very, you know, this is their culture. They were born into it. And, uh, you know, I I have no objection to all of the new North Americanos that are uh, becoming uh, Ayahuasca practitioners if they try to hold in the the traditions and all it's right. you know i i like doing things alone it ayahuasca is the only substance that i would never do alone because it's uh <laughs> while while you're isolated when you do it that it, i don't know if you want me to i could tell you quickly how a ceremony goes yeah, please. I, can you go step okay yeah, please you know, what you do is is well let me just say this is in my tradition it's a group of people who have been together for over 30 years and uh we we get in a circle anywhere from 12 to 25 maybe at the most and uh we sit in in darkness and one at a time we go up to the uh center up to the uh, one point in the circle where the uh Iwas Caro is and and he and we take a sip so by the time you go around the circle everybody has gone up the front and drunk their uh, little shot glass of the most revolting stuff you've ever <laughs> and it's so thick that you know you have to shake it out of the cups and i don't even want to think about it <laughs> but, but uh then you sit in the circle and of course the ones that started first are like maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes ahead of the ones that did it last. So you're kind of coming on at different times. But then you sit there quietly for, uh, I say, until the light show begins. You know, it takes you maybe a uh, half hour or 40 minutes for it to really start kicking in. And then uh, I like and I, you know, I, I call, I describe these things in a couple of segments. I call the light show when you see in all the, the, the fireworks and everything like that. Uh, I liken that to when you're going uh, on a ride, say, at Disneyland, and you're waiting in line for the ride, and you go through this tunnel, and there's all kinds of pretty lights and stuff, but then you get on the ride. You know? <laughs> but what, what happens uh, is it, so different every time. 
there, you know, it's it's very hard to describe, but the life lessons you get. I'll just give you one example, then then we can move on. Yeah. But uh, one one of the times I went in, my my uh, intention or my question was, why am I so afraid of everything? I want to get rid of my fear. Well, you know, you sit there, everybody has a bucket next to them, by the way. And, and, you know, the first thing you hear people talking about, oh, people throw up, they purge. And uh, in our tradition, we call it El Purga. And it's, you know, you've been fasting for like six or eight hours and, and on a diet for a week ahead of time. So you're really cleansed already. So what our Ayahuasca Caros tell us is that if you purge, it's psychic stuff that's coming out. Even though there's stuff coming out of, out of your mouth, it's, it's, it's your psychic energy you're purging. And the first four or five times I did Ayahuasca, I did not purge. And uh, I was real happy about that. But uh, it, now, now, this is going to sound gross. I don't want to revolt your audience. No, but no. once you have purged on ayahuasca once or twice, you, you're you disappointed the nights that you don't because <laughs> it's like being in the middle of one of those big, beautiful orange firework explosions on the 4th of July. It's spectacular. <laughs> but uh, we'll move on. Anyhow, I wanted to get rid of my fear. And you sit there during the night, and, but every once in a while, you know, you'll be, and, and the Iowa's Carol will be singing the Acaros and, and playing uh, flutes and stuff. So there's, there's music going on, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you'll get this little voice in your head that'll say, grab your bucket. <laughs> and I, on my fear night, I grab my bucket. And I, I just kept purging and purging. I never purged that much before. And I just think I was done. And I'd start to put the bucket down and she'd say, Get the bucket back. You know? <laughs> so, I I kept purging and purging until finally she said, are you satisfied? That's your fear. You are done with oh, your wow. fear. And I'll be honest with you. I lost my fear of death. I lost, you know, my fear of disease. Wow. And, and, you know, I, I don't do foolish things, but fear has uh, moved away from me. So uh, that's the kind of thing that can happen on ayahuasca. Wow, that's incredible. You know, uh, the last episode that we did of this podcast, uh, I spoke about uh, using psilocybin to help me quit smoking cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been effective. It's been almost six months, and I just did a short microdosing experiment. But I felt like the same sort of thing was happening. It was, you know, the the addiction was being purged of, you know, out of my body. And, you know, maybe it's not uh, quite a physical purge like ayahuasca but i think the psychedelics seem to purge bad things out of you yeah it's a psychic purge that mm-hmm. you're really really talking about and and psilocybin is is so uh under investigated under thought about right now ayahuasca is the the hot new thing you know right, it right. took me 10 years of active searching before i was finally able to contact an ayahuasca group but now wow. it's it's much more easy to find mm-hmm. but uh, psilocybin is what uh, dr grobe used uh when they were treating end-stage cancer patients, that's what they use, psilocybin. Right. Uh, and, and they're treating them to ease their anxiety about their fear of death was what the, the study was about. And, and it, was, it was an amazing success. Right. But uh, psilocybin has uh, – actually, I think that uh, in the 50s up in Canada, psilocybin in addition to LSD was one of the things they were using to cure alcoholism. Right. That was supposed to be one of the 12 steps for AA was LSD. <laughs> right. They- 
And and that's I can't remember the guy's name that uh, started uh, AA, but uh, he he wanted to use LSD, and that's how he lost control of the organization. I understand is that uh, they threw him out because he he thought LSD would be more effective than. That's right. That's <laughs> right. I think they're con- at, at the moment they're conducting studies at NYU and at John Hopkins on psilocybin and addiction for every from gambling for heroin for tobacco for the whole nine. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, I think Roland Griffiths is involved in some of that too, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, yeah, they've got a lot of stuff going on at uh, Johns Hopkins for sure. Oh wow! Well, you've you've also had positive experiences uh, using MDMA in your relationship. Um, do you do you think that regular MDMA sessions should be like mandatory um, for marriage counseling? Well, uh, I don't like laws and rules, but if I was going to make one for if I was going to make one for myself, yes. In fact, uh, <laughs> I, I I don't want to go into uh, too many personal details, sure, but sure. Uh, it it is uh, significant. Uh, in fact, in my my first marriage, probably lasted about seven, eight, or eight years longer than it naturally would have because uh, we worked together with MDMA, and. Uh, you know, it's it's funny as you get older, the the body load of MDMA uh, can can be a little challenging. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, my my uh, my wife and I had this deal that should we ever uh, kind of get angry or want to get some kind of an impasse that before we did or said anything that couldn't be taken back, we would do MDMA together. But about five years ago, we got to one of those points, and we both decided we'd work out our program problems alone without it because we didn't go through the experience. So in that way, it still is helping our, our relationship, you know? <laughs> oh, wow, that's great. We, um, you know, we're really focused here on uh, getting psych- positive psychedelic stories out to the public. Right. Uh, we believe that people like you are perfect catalysts for you know, change like public opinion. Right. Uh, what do you think would be, what do you think would be the most major turning point for public opinion on psychedelics? Like what needs, what would need to happen? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, I don't know if I could come up with some major thing. I think mm-hmm. the, 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 it depends on how you judge time. You know, if right. I, I'm starting as as I'm approaching to the end of my life here, I'm starting to see more time and more of a generational uh, light. And from my perspective, things have changed so much that, first of all, I graduated from college in 1964 without ever having heard the word marijuana. Wow. <laughs> wow. Right. Now, so... If you look at it at a generational standpoint, look how free we are about talking about these things now and how many people, you know, just go to YouTube and you can see jillions of things about yeah. it. Whereas, uh, you know, there, there are still uh, some of my friends who are, are in a position they can't even mention the word at work, even though they're very psychedelic. So, but where we've come to from where we started just in my lifetime has been a major step. So what I think you'll see if you live to be maybe five or 600 years old is, <laughs> is that the major turning point, it, it took place during the people's lives that are alive right now because they started talking about it around the water cooler and, and it just became a part of the regular conversation and wasn't a, a taboo subject. All right. Oh yeah, we had the opportunity to go to the Horizons conference in uh, New York City in October, 
that's really a, a great conference. Oh uh, yeah, uh, oh, it's, it's, yeah. That, that really catalog um, was the catalyst to this whole our whole ideals here on the Tink Tink Club. It really helped us. It motivated us. Like hearing those people for three days straight really inspired what we're doing now. And, and that's a perfect size conference where you can get to meet a lot of people. You know, it's not just packed with people. It's it's just the right size to get around. You know, it's yeah. about three times bigger than the Plenke uh, uh, and Theobotany conferences, but it's still, you know, a way you can make some new friends, make some contacts. Yeah. And it's growing, too. I, the, the last day, they had to move the lectures to a larger hall in New York City to uh, accommodate everyone. Oh, that's a good sign. Yeah. That's a good sign, yeah. And, you know, like um – one of the speakers there was talking about what we, what I just said, getting positive psychedelic stories out there and, you know, getting rid of the negative ones. Right. Uh, Chris was telling me the other day, you cannot type in psilocybin on Google and find something negative. Yeah. Every wow. story that comes up is positive, you know, and hopefully it just keeps going in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's really wonderful. I didn't, didn't even think about that. But, you know, another thing that that uh, I think probably is is really helpful getting uh, acceptance, uh, uh, you know, kind of forget my generation. We're moving out of the way. But uh, the, the baby boomers uh, are, are, you know, hot and cold about it. But when you start talking about the medical benefits of MDMA for PTSD sufferers, mm-hmm. that, that covers a, a really big uh group of people. Uh, the study that Charlie and Alicia Danforth are doing in L.A. right now using MDMA with uh, high-functioning autistic people to help them uh, better integrate socially is another uh, huge uh, thing to talk about because autism is becoming so widespread. But to the baby boomers, uh, rather than talk about psychedelics, I talk about cannabis or call it medical marijuana for them, but there are some uh, geriatric doctors, uh, one that I know of uh, in Northern California, who has uh, been working with a a number of nursing homes, full, you know, assisted living places, where they've essentially gotten almost all of their their patients off of their prescription medicines. And they're they're using brownie, they're they're eating cannabis laced brownie. (laughs) And they're having conversations, their appetites have returned, big surprise. <laughs> and they're having amazing results with, with geriatric patients who are, are, for the first time, using cannabis. So uh, the, that medical marijuana for old people and then for other people, if you talk about PTSD and, and autism, everybody's going to know somebody that's suffering from one of those two uh, Disorders, and so I think that by use, talking about the medical uses is you know only a, you know even in at Eleusis uh, during the mysteries of Eleusis only about fifteen percent of the population participated in it, and yet they created the the atmosphere for their golden age. So we don't have to have everybody using psychedelics. Everybody's not going to want to, and not not right. going to like it even. Right. But uh, the the medical establishment can use MDMA and psilocybin. LSD eventually, I think, will get back in because uh, it's really important for uh, uh, alcohol addiction. Mm-hmm. But uh, and then medical marijuana for old people because it's it's so gentle. Uh, yeah, us dusty old farts love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're absolutely right. I um, I'm actually a bartender, and I I find it's easy to talk to older people about edible marijuana because they don't want to smoke it. You know, they're okay with eating a cookie though. All right. Uh, and yeah. then the younger, like you said, the younger people, 
that's exactly what I talk about, PTSD, using MT, MDMA with PTSD. And you're right, people uh, can make a connection really easily that way. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And and the only, uh, it, it, when you're talking to older people about eating it, you, you say, now there is is one thing you got to take in mind. It could take as much as three hours for it to come on. So <laughs> don't get impatient and keep eating those brownies. <laughs> yeah, I've seen right. that happen. <laughs> well, yeah, we've all... You know that was those that horror story, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and and you know you'll also I'm sure you probably experienced this that that you maybe had one time where you got too much on the edible, and then another time later you ate some, and in about 20 minutes you started feeling a tingle and you panicked, but it never really came on too fast. But you thought it was going. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. All the good stories, you know. Yeah, that's right. If, if it wasn't fun, you know, why would we be doing it just for hell? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, so you've played uh, a few interviews with uh, Aldous Huxley on the Salon. Uh, have you have you ever read Island? Oh, uh, several times. Yes, and, uh, uh, one of my favorites. How do you feel about how do you feel about coming of age ceremonies for young kids like like they do in that book? <laughs> well, I, I'm very strong on it. That that actually his widow Laura uh, was a friend of ours, and uh, I spoke to her about that quite a few times. And and uh, she said that Aldous uh, always felt that his best book he ever wrote was Island. Wow. That was the one he he felt that was his his uh, pinnacle of his work. So uh, it's something worth paying attention to for Huxley fans for sure. And I I think that. Uh, I think not just for young people, but for uh, the various stages of life, there should be separate ceremonies for you know uh, people, children enter, uh, just entering puberty, for uh, people who are becoming independent young adults, for people getting married, for people entering into old age or whatever. I think there there's each one of these changes in your life pattern. Uh, could be greatly assisted through some sort of ceremonies. And I I do know that a lot of people are independently working on these things. Like I know the uh, the Women's Visionary Congress, uh, several, some of the women there are uh, working with Native Americans and then uh, South American uh, natives to uh, study their uh, rituals and then see how they could be adopted for, you know, people like us that didn't grow up in that, that kind of a culture. And uh, I think over time, I think my grandchildren will be indoctrinating their children in some sort of a, a medicine ritual. I really think that'll happen. Right. Maybe not legally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think in, in, the, in the psychedelic world right now, that might be the most taboo subject, giving – because <laughs> even if it gets – hypothetically, it gets legalized, there will be an age limit on it. Right, and now we want to give it to, you know, thir- a coming now, of age, thirteen years old, going into puberty. I, you know, I had, I actually have mixed emotions about that. That, uh, I, I, it wasn't until I started talking, uh, becoming friends with Dope Fiend, who, uh, you know, he's he just now turned thirty, I think, but uh, he was in his early twenties when we started talking, and and he sent me a bunch of information about uh, how how long it takes for a human brain to really finally. Uh, come to maturity and so there's a lot of questions about particularly cannabis i think because people would use it more mm-hmm. whereas a ceremony 
at one or two, say at thirteen years old, right. a one-time ceremony. I don't, I don't have uh, much problem with. I don't have any problem with if it's uh, done intelligently. And uh, you know, there's all kinds of interesting stories. You know, I, I know in uh, uh, these ayahuascaros, I know their uh, children have uh, been using ayahuasca since they were infants. Uh, not heavy doses or anything, but. Uh, I think it could be done. I think it could be done intelligently, and yeah. and I don't think there's a one size fits all. I think it's going to be you know this this American continent here has all kinds of different cultures, so it would have to be something that works into their culture probably. But uh, I don't think it would do any uh, any real damage. In fact, <laughs> Ann Shulgin one time told me that some friends of theirs had. Uh, uh, got a hold of some liquid acid, and they put two drops on two sugar cubes and put it in their rice box re- refrigerator, and their little two-year-old daughter oh chugged them down. Oh, no. And so they said, okay, panic time. What do we do? We can't take her to the emergency room. You know, and everything. So they said, well, we'll just watch her. And outside of the fact that she didn't go to bed until like 6 o'clock the next morning, mm-hmm. she exhibited zero tendency <laughs> of any other change. Yeah, I'm sure. She was just and, still a kid. And the, uh, Anne Shogun thinks that, uh, I, I forgot, she referenced some research that's been done. There's a possibility that infants uh, come in in a psychedelic state, you know, the blooming, buzzing oh, yeah. confusion. And uh, so she, in fact, in burn wards in this country, they when they chill, uh, change bad bandages for severely burned children, they uh, give them some ketamine, <clears throat> shoot them up with ketamine. Wow. They used to do that. They used to do that to the adults, but the adults would come back with all these wild tales, and the kids, <laughs> the kids don't report anything. So, right. <laughs> who knows? Right. Yeah, that one podcast that you uh, that we spoke about earlier with, I think her name was Katie, uh, the one that treated her PTSD with MDMA. She said yeah. that she felt like if she had one at uh, fourteen years old, because she had such a early traumatic experience, that um, right. it would have helped her out earlier or later on. Um, yeah, sure. She wouldn't have been carrying all that baggage, so it makes total sense that the ceremony, ceremony versus a habit, or um, I don't know, party. a party. But you know what? What maybe could could eventually evolve here is is a, a, a meeting of the minds between some of the professional therapists, like the Mitoffers, the ones they're training, and uh, you know the Women's Congress and people and shamans and and all to come up with some uh, new rituals for a, a new millennium. You know, and and you know even even in the jungle, uh, the internet has penetrated everywhere. So we're we're entering a new phase of humanity here in in many ways because uh you know four billion people now have some sort of access to the internet Hmm. (laughs) that's over half of the humans alive you could if you put your mind to it you could contact them directly in five minutes yeah that's a psychedelic (laughs) that's psychedelic in itself right there (laughs) boy yeah you know that's 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 beyond belief that (laughs) when when i was working uh and I was the internet and Java evangelist for what now is Verizon. And uh, I remember one time uh, we were out working with the people at Sun and Netscape. And at, at the conference uh, we were, we were uh, speaking at, one of the speakers said that he, what his, his and I think this was either, uh, I think it was maybe Vincent Cerf, the father of the internet. He said what the goal was is to make the internet as invisible as the telephone or electricity. So the only time you think about it is when it doesn't work. 
Wow. <laughs> the plan was to get there by 2050. I think we're almost there. <laughs> yeah, I think we are, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, you know, another thing that, uh, that it, a little, this is a, a, not a psychedelic thought, I don't think, but uh, one of the, I was out there for this, this one conference and afterwards uh, visiting with some of the, the, the suits, you know, and, and uh, this one vice president's son told me, he says, I was talking about R&D, and, and he says, oh, what you want to do is the same thing we're doing. We're putting everybody in Silicon Valley is putting all our R&D and money in wire, wireless. Now, this was like 15 years ago, mm. <laughs> a little more, actually, about 20 now. And uh, that was before wireless. Was, you know, Bluetooth was about the only thing we'd even heard of. <laughs> And uh, I said, well, why is that? And he says, well, we're all living up in the mountains over the valley, and there's no Internet connection up there. And so we want high-speed Internet wireless, and so we're developing it for ourselves for our retirement. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and that, that was the, the incentive for a lot of the Wi-Fi development, I think. <laughs> right. Wow. Lorenzo, in uh, Confessions of an uh, Ecstasy Advocate, you said uh, you can't be an atheist with five grams of dried mushroom, mushrooms in your system. Well, what, <laughs> what is your uh, idea of a higher power? I mean, have you had an experience like that while you've had while you've been on mushrooms? You know, I've 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 had them all kinds of experiences. Uh, one of the the most intense I had was one night on ayahuasca, and uh, I can still actually see where I was sitting and and. Not I, I. There was an entity there that I, I actually was hallucinating an entity that I is a woman in a big black hooded cape thing, and I called her Mother Ayahuasca just because you know. Anyhow, we're having this little conversation, and there was this dark curtain behind her, and on the bottom of it, there's a little bit of light coming out of it, and I said to her, I said, "What's behind the curtain?" And she reached down and started picking up the corner. And as she did so, it started getting really bright. And she says, that's you. You want to see it? <laughs> and I panicked. I said, wow. no, 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 shut it down. And all of a sudden, bong, she was gone, you know. But wow. uh, that that's the kind of strange thing that's happened. But I'll tell you where my favorite new metaphor is now. And it's it's it came from uh, Bernardo Castrop's uh, talk a couple of weeks ago where he was talking about the the whole universe being in well he said a, a river but it could be a, a, i'm thinking of an ocean of consciousness just we don't know what consciousness is but it's what everything is in the ocean and we're like fish in the ocean and we don't notice the water but we are little whirlpools uh in this ocean of consciousness and so i like to think of the ocean of consciousness i don't i don't see a supreme overall being mm -hmm. but i see this ocean of consciousness in which some whirlpools are more intense than others and more interesting than others and uh the whirlpools can come and go from these little currents in the ocean of us and uh that's kind of the way i'm looking at it now but you know what if you ask me this question next week i'll probably change my mind again <laughs> But here's the other thing. I used to spend a lot of time thinking about those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm I'm getting a lot older, I, I doesn't seem I'm not that interested because you know I'm gonna find out sooner than I want to anyhow. <laughs> so I've I've really not been investigating those things too much. And right now, uh as I as I age, I'm thinking now more about leaving this place a little bit better shape for my grandkids, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow. 
You know, uh, you mentioned earlier that you really only stick to like ayahuasca nowadays. And, you know, obviously, you know, Alan Watts famously said, when you get the message, hang up the phone in regards actually, to the my, psychedelics. My friend Jerry Fisher was actually there the first time he said that. Wow. <laughs> really? That was, a, that was at a party, a dinner party at Aldous Huxley's house. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and it was before Laura was his wife. It was with his first wife, Maria. And uh, it was at a dinner party that he said that. Wow. Gary was there from telling me the story. So, yeah, that's – and actually, Gary told me that story when uh, he was about 70, and, and uh, I was trying to talk him into doing an acid trip with me. <laughs> he said, no, no, I'm, I'm done with all that. And, right. and uh, he told me that story. I said, yeah, I've heard that quote before. And, uh, but I said, you know, I think it's a cop-out, Gary. I just think – and he just kind of had this little – shit-eating grin of his and he says when do you get to be my age and you know what <laughs> i you know i i uh i've kind of lost my desire to do these things it might be partly physical but you know it, you get so much to process i've got maybe 30 or 40 40 hours of cassette tapes that i've made under the influence of mushrooms i call them my mushroom tapes really and they wouldn't mean anything to anybody because it's just like gobbledygook. But <laughs> I can actually bring back some of the light shows I saw in my head then, you know, uh -huh. by listening to these tapes. So I've got more than enough information to process. And, uh, the, the, you know, it's not the same adventure it used to be. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm getting old. I love cannabis and like, I'm an old stone. <laughs> What can I say? <laughs> All right. All right. Oh, well, well, you know, there's no denying that uh, people become infected with these ideas, whether it's through the use of psychedelics or attending festivals and lectures or just listening to your podcast. Uh, and they're ultimately happier for it. Uh, how do you feel your life has improved since the beginning of your journey into psychedelics? Well, when I first started, you know, I was actually in the middle of a midlife crisis and I had a company that wasn't, you know, IBM had just gotten in the computer business and they were eating our lunch and uh, my then wife and I weren't getting, everything was going wrong at the time. So it was not a, a high point for me. Now, I, uh, and then I really got into it. I did lots of everything for a long time, but it wasn't until the podcast maybe the second year of the podcast, that I finally figured out that this is really what I wanted to do with my life, you know? <laughs> I, I, all these years, I've, uh, I've tried everything. You know, I've, you've seen some of my resume. You know, so I've tried all these different careers, but it, it's, I, mean, I just love doing these podcasts, and, and uh, you know, I, I like kind of being behind the scenes. I don't like going out and, you know, to conferences or speaking in public anymore, but I feel good about what I'm doing with the podcast because, you know, I get these these emails from police officers and military people and 15-year-olds. And, you know, it's – it's uh, for a long time, I was sitting out there at what I thought was the end of the line. You know, I only had one friend I knew I could even talk to about these things. And so I like to think that I'm helping people like I used to be sitting out at the end of the line knowing that they're not the only ones, you know. Uh, Lorenzo, do you think that you would have gotten to the same place uh, that you are now or anywhere near it had you not done that first uh, MDMA trip? If I hadn't become involved in psychedelics, I wouldn't be alive right now. 
Uh, no, my, I was I was I was drinking <laughs> a fifth of whiskey a day oh, <laughs> when I started with MDMA, and then I found out that alcohol interfered with it, so I quit drinking alcohol at the time. Yeah, you know, I'll still drink uh, you know one or two glasses of wine with a meal now, but uh, you know I I was really going downhill fast. I was you know losing it, and uh, and a couple other points in my life when when. Uh, I was really, you know, I, you know, bad things happened to all of us, and uh, it it was through psychedelics and the psychedelic community that that uh, has got me to where I, I I now I feel better mentally and physically than I think I ever have in my life, and so my end end days here, I, and I'm not ready to go. I'm planning to be here till I'm at least ninety four, so I've got, <laughs> I've got miles to go before I sleep. But uh, my the last part of my life is like what most people have in their childhood. You know, I'm just having nothing but fun. (laughs) So from putting all these lectures out and podcasts out for 10 years now, do you think, do you see an underlying message behind all of them? Well, you know, I've never really given that any thought. Uh, and I, I'm not going to answer right now because I haven't really thought about it. But <laughs> here, here's what happens in some of these podcasts: is I don't really plan them more than you know a few days ahead of time. And some of these these podcasts seem to well, like I, I just uh, two days ago I put out uh, one of the Planky Narte talks, and it was uh, by Marion Goodell, uh, the CEO of Burning Man, <laughs> and I. I put it out on the on Tuesday, the seventeenth, and I went to the Burning Man site as I'm doing this, and it's only then I realized that the next day, yesterday, was when the tickets were going to go on sale. And those kind of things, you know, so often uh, a McKenna talk will just kind of like pop into my foreground somehow, and it'll say, "Play me, play me," and it turns out to be the perfect one for the time. Right. So. Uh, I, it must be some sort of a uh, psychic vibe that's a collective unconscious of all of us that that I seem to be able to get podcasts coming in a lot of the time that are just kind of uh, in tune with what's going on. But as far as an overall message, uh, I guess it's what I said earlier. I'd, I like people to be able to talk about this around the water cooler at work. Right. Uh, that's great. Lorenzo, uh, that's it. That's all the time we have. Uh <laughs> We appreciate you coming here more than anything. Uh, we're, like I said, we're big fans. Uh, for everybody listening, go to what's your website so people can find the podcast or psychedelicsalon.us. Okay, psychedelicsalon.us. And I think you, the uh, Genesis Generation, is coming out in uh, March first. March first in paperback form. Yeah, actually, you know, I first published it in 2009 as an audiobook. Right. The next year as an ebook, and I finally sold enough copies to hire a, an editor and have it professionally <laughs> edited. But then, you know, originally it was going to be the first of a series of four, but uh, it doesn't look like I'm going to get the rest of them out. So I've rewritten the final chapter and included uh, much of the first chapter of the next one and tied up all the loose ends. So uh, it's kind of a standalone book now, and it'll be. Right out in paperback on the 1st of March. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right, Lorenzo, uh, for the Tink Tink Club, I'm Matt Landis. I'm Chris Conti. I'm Tim King. And uh, we'll tink you later. <laughs> thanks a lot, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Love each other. I just want to say thanks again to Lorenzo for coming on the show. Uh, it was truly an honor for us. And hopefully we'll have you back again soon. <laughs> 
Make sure you go to psychedelicsalon.us for more information about my favorite podcast, The Psychedelic Salon. Go to maps.org, M-A-P-S.org for some great information about clinical trials and ongoing research into the stuff that we discussed on this episode. Uh, you can also go to clinicaltrials.gov to see if uh, you might you know, be able to get involved in something and help the cause. Go to tinktinkclub.com for all your Tink Tink Club needs and uh, go to suredesigntshirts.com and use the coupon code tinktink at checkout. That would uh, help you out. And it would help us out. I'm going to leave you with a song from Desert Dwellers called Seeing Things. Remember to love each other.